Does it work? We're testing out some new sound equipment, so be patient with us. You can go ahead and turn to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4 is where we'll be camping out today. Actually, chapter 4 and chapter 5. I know, I'll just say, as, um, as they're getting the sound equipment worked out, as we're singing the psalms, as we're learning to sing the psalms, it may feel clunky at times, but I want to encourage you in it. <laughs> we're singing God's words back to him, and we're learning what they're doing to us, what God's word, Paul urges us in Colossians to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And all, all that we have in our culture is hymns and spiritual songs. So I want us to learn to sing the psalms in that way. And I know it will be hard. It's, I'm not saying it's easy. Uh, but as we do so, we will be formed by it. And I, I just want to continue to encourage you in that. Um, we'll go ahead and read, though. I'm actually only going to read down to verse 7 of Job chapter 4. And then I'm going to pray for us. But we're going to actually cover chapter 4 and chapter 5 today. So Job chapter 4 starting in verse 1. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the, the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees." But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we are those who can attend to your word, what you have said for your glory. So Lord, as we sing the word, and now as we hear the word read, and then Lord, as we're going to hear the word preached, I pray that Lord, we would be ones who attend to your word. Shape us, form us on the mold of your wisdom, we pray. We ask this, we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. The title for today's talk is simply Crossless Wisdom, and I'm calling that Religious Wisdom. Crossless Wisdom, a Religious Wisdom. I want to introduce you to somebody, and I, you, I don't have a picture of him, but I'll introduce you to him via words. His name is Justin Peters. And he was a guy I've listened to, and he, he really pushes against uh, what's called a, a word of faith movement. Uh, but he was a guy who had cerebral palsy. And if you don't know what cerebral palsy is, it basically just begins to cripple you very slowly. And he was a young man when he first uh, became a Christian. But it, it was at age 16 that he started entering into this word of faith movement. He would start attending these services with his cerebral palsy, hoping, hoping, longing to be healed. And he would go, and they would tell him all the time, like, Justin, you can be healed. And he has cerebral palsy, so he's hopeful, right, sitting in the crowd. But then time and time and time and time again, it would drone on. 
that they would tell him, well, Justin, the reason you're not healed is you don't have enough faith. That's what's, that's what's wrong with you. Justin, you're not healed. You have cerebral palsy because you just don't believe enough. You need to believe more. And we look at that and we, we should be like, that's, that's insane. Why, why? Why are they doing that? And it is sad. It's sad for Justin. It's sad for them. But it's sad ultimately because what they're doing is they're not understanding who God is. And, and Justin would go to them in hopes that they would, he would find healing, and time and time and time and time again, he would not find it. I want us to see today, if you're, if you're taking notes, if you get nothing else, we look, at that, we look at that situation with Justin and we think, well, that's not what our wisdom's like, ever, right? But the problem is, is oftentimes our wisdom is like that. It's just in lesser degrees. If you get nothing else from today, get this, that unless our wisdom keeps Christ at the center. It will be harsh, uncharitable, extremely burdensome, and ultimately it is vanity. Now we're, gonna, we're turning in, in Job now. We, we've seen Job go from the greatest in the land all the way down to weeping and sackcloth and ashes. And now we're going to see what happens when Job's friends come in the picture. And we're going to spend several weeks doing this. We're only going to really focus through the first cycle of speeches. There's, there's three different cycles that go over like 30-some chapters. I'm going to spare you from the bulk of that. But I want, to, I want us to consider some of their speeches because it's actually in these friends that there's several initial assumptions I want you to see. The first is this, is that they're anti-typical. Anti-typical. They're a negative example, okay? And they're very important for that reason, that they're negative examples, like every story, we will read, we will read the diagnosis and we'll be like, well, what? we don't really understand where these friends fit in the picture, but just like Job is a positive example, we, we're going to see these friends as being negative examples. And we need to be very careful as we approach these friends, because what we do, every time we hear a story, we think, well, I'm, I'm like Job. I'm the one who suffers. And I would actually argue that the writer, this is even their intention in doing this, is wanting you to put yourself actually in the friend's shoes and to show you that actually probably some of your wisdom is very, very, very crossless. And this is, very, this is what wisdom literature is meant to do to us. Where if, we, if we just think, oh, well, I'm like Job. I'm the one who suffers. And people, and that sometimes is true. But oftentimes, whether you're Job or whether you're the friends, you will see that the friends um, are the negative example. Okay, so I just want you to consider that. The second thing, the other initial assumption is this, is they're prophetic. And we've seen this a bunch, but they point beyond themselves. Now, so Job points beyond himself, and that's pretty clear. We see the Lord Jesus. But you know what the friends actually do too? They're also prophetic. They point beyond themselves because they're not just pointing to themselves. We're not simply going to look at what does it mean to be a good friend today. That's some of what we're going to look at, but that's not all of what we're going to look at. And we'll talk more about the prophetic part. So we, we come now to the first friend. So Eliphaz, who was he? That's the question. Who was he? Eliphaz. And then it, we see in verse 4, he says, Eliphaz, this is the first cycle, chapter 4 and chapter 5, of the first cycle of the friends coming to him. And so it says, Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, okay, so we see this friend coming. Now, likely, uh, if, you get, if you're like me and you get confused at which friend's talking and whatnot, think about Eliphaz the Elder. That's what we're going to call him. Eliphaz the Elder. You can just write that down. It's not in your notes, but Eliphaz the Elder. 
because it's likely that he was Job's eldest friend. He was Job's friend who would have likely been the wisest, quote-unquote, because he comes to him first. He speaks first. And we'll be tempted as we read Eliphaz's speech, we'll think, man, this guy was a real jerk. (laughs) But what I want you to see is this guy wasn't a real jerk. He was actually very kind and very courteous to Job. He's not pushy. He's not aggressive. He's like a sweet older man that's coming to Job, putting his arm around him. And I loved what one author said. He said, Eliphaz's error, yeah, Eliphaz's error lies in the content, not, I'm sorry, Eliphaz's error lies in the content of what he believes, not so much in the way that he expresses it. So it, it lies not in what he believes as much as the way that he expresses it. So we're going to see Eliphaz give three different pleas to Job, okay? So here's the first one. Let's look at it in turn. And it goes down from verse 1 down to verse 11. It's the plea from tradition. And he's basically asserting how the world works. It's the plea from tradition. Listen to what he says in verse 2. He says, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Rather than, rather than thinking about that word as impatient as we would think about it, like that he's not patient to listen to them, we need to think about it as, as, will this be too much for you? That's what he's asking to start. So he's requesting for a listener, for a listening ear. He's requesting for a listening ear. And his question is, will you hear? It's very simple. And you can see even the older man who's coming in, he's beginning to come, into Job, come to Job and he's saying, will you listen to me? Has it been too hard? Will you, will you hear what I'm saying? But then he starts to move in verse three and, 3 and 4. Listen to what he says. Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened their weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the verbal knees. Basically what he's saying is, you have come to those who, who were so suffering, Job, before, that their hands were, would lay the, hang down by their side that their knees were so weak with carrying a heavy heavy burden. And his question really now is, it's an appeal to learn. It's an appeal to learn. And he's basically saying now, you've instructed many, let me instruct you. Okay, so we need to see that this is, Eliphaz, Eliphaz is not coming to Job as someone that's like, hey, get your act together, man, clean yourself up. He's, he's coming to him as a, as a brother, as a friend arm around him. Look in verse 5, though. So if you have your Bible there, he says, but now it has come to you, and are you impatient, or will you bear? It touches you, and you are dismayed. What I want you to notice is that, from verse 5 there, is that, um, let me see if I can find it, sorry. But now it's come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. What's interesting is that Job and Eliphaz have actually started with the same worldview. They've started but before this, because he, he, he's coming to Job now, and he's saying, hey, me, me and you used to instruct other people. Me and you used to help other people. Do you remember that? But now he's basically saying, the shoe's on the other foot, Job. How are you going to respond? Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity and the integrity of your ways your hope? Eliphaz is pleading with Job to remember the convictions that he once had. And his appeal 
is that God rewards pious people with blessing. This is, his, this is his appeal, very simply. You know that God rewards those who sow good things. You, Job, you know how the universe works. That there's moral, moral order here. God gives good things to good people. Listen to what he says in verse 7. This is really the, the crux of what Job or Eliphaz is saying. Remember who that was innocent ever perished. Or where were the upright cut off? He's basically asking this in question form now. Basically saying, you know that the righteous never perish, Job. You know that the wicked are the, wicked are the ones that are cut off. And at first, we hear this and we're like, yeah, that's true. The problem with Eliphaz is there will be much truth intermingled with this. <laughs> this, is, this, is why, this is why Eliphaz, more than the others, are a little harder to, to really even see. We're going to even see the Apostle Paul quote Eliphaz. So, we need to be very careful as we approach this because he's going to tell Job a lot of very true things. But he has this idea that's called retributive justice. This is, this is, and now, to be fair, this concept is taught in other places in Scripture, okay? So retributive justice, and I'm calling it the grain of life. Now, if you know what, anything about wood, wood, wood has something called a grain to it. That's what we call it. And it's basically um, the way that the fibers of the wood are grown. And so when you go smooth on the grain like this, it doesn't give you a splinter. Now, if you go against the grain, it gives you a splinter. So if you've ever run on on bare feet on wood and you've gotten a splinter, that means you were moving against the grain (laughs) and you got a piece of wood in your foot. Now, Proverbs could be called with the grain. When we read Proverbs, we hear, listen to just Proverbs 22, 8. This is what it says. So this is with the grain, okay? He says, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Or, or listen to Psalm 37, like we read this morning. I have been young, and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his children begging for bread. So there it is again. That, that's the, uh, with the grain of life. Now, Ecclesiastes is a little different. It's kind of like against the grain. It kind of hurts to go across the grain. But Job, where do we put Job in that? If retributive justice is with the grain of life, where's Job? He's kind of like the knot in the tree, that the grain all goes all over the place. You You can't trace the grain. There is no grain here. And what Eliphaz is doing is he's applying principles that are with the grain to a knot in the tree. And he doesn't understand why this is happening. So it's basically this, that the righteous prosper and the wicked, wicked suffer. I want you to listen to two other examples to, hear, to see this just in Scripture. Um, in verse 8, he says, of Job 4, he says, As I have seen those who plow iniquity, sow trouble, and reap the same. Or, or take the example of Paul on the island of Malta. He lands, he crash lands on, a, on an island and he's picking up sticks in Acts 28. And listen, this is, this is not just a view held by those in Scripture. This is a view held outside of those from Scripture as well. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging on his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. There it is again, retributive but justice. We see it all over the place. Look, he's gotten bit, so therefore he's done something wrong. 
okay? Or, or the wicked suffer. You see it again in John 9. We see even the disciples talk to Jesus about this. John 9, 1 through 2. It says, then he passed by, this is Jesus, and he saw a blind, he saw a man blind from birth. Listen to what his disciples ask. And his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So there it is again. They see someone blind, and they immediately think, well, someone must have sinned. Someone must have done something wrong. And so it is with Eliphaz. He comes, and he's like, well, Job, you know this. We've talked about this before. I've heard you counsel other people, and you've said that when bad comes, it's because you've reaped sown bad. So here's someone in a bad experience. That means someone must have done something wrong. And now, now to be fair, even the Apostle Paul teaches retributive justice, which is true. The problem with retributive justice, though, is that we try to think that we always see when justice has come. God God is eternal. (laughs) That means he stands outside of what we're experiencing right now as time and space. Meaning that true ultimate justice will only ever come when? In the end. So that doesn't mean, so though retributive justice is true, it does not mean that it will happen here in this life. And Eliphaz's theology, it does not account for it. He gives many examples. Listen to what he says in verse 9. And this is basically like Eliphaz going, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Job, I'm talking to you in a very nice way. Listen to how he says it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. And what Eliphaz does not understand, though, is that retributive justice will come to pass, but it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And every time we see something wrong happen, we don't immediately say, well, where did they fail? Where did, where did, where did they go wrong? So, and I, I didn't ask her, but I'm just going to share this story. So my wife used to su- suffer from chronic illness. And there were friends that would come to her. And, so here's the problem, and we see this even in Job. When things immediately struck, people come to him, and they're, they're comforting him, and they're loving him, and they're caring for him. But then seven days pass, and they're just like, Job, just repent, man. Get on with your life. And it was amazing to me, after just listening to her even recount the story, after what year one, and then year two, and then year three of being sick, the amount of people that would come to her and say, what do you do wrong? Or, or they'd go to conferences and be like, oh, we got a guy who will help you. We got a guy who will heal you. Here, come, sit, listen. Then they'll talk, they'll try to heal her, and then they're like, well, well you must have sinned in some way. What's, what's wrong with you? And we're all like, what? That's ridiculous. <laughs> but this is true. This is coming even from people who claim to be Christians. So, so if we don't have, like, retributive justice is true, that, that that's the grain of life. But if we don't have in our minds that that retributive justice doesn't happen immediately, we will miss the gospel. And this is exactly what Eliphaz is bringing. He's bringing a crossless wisdom. A crossless wisdom that centers on being harsh and demanding. A a crossless, Christless wisdom that focuses on being uncharitable, extremely burdensome, and ultimately vanity. And what we'll see over and over again, Colossians 1, if we have a retributive justice mindset, we'll miss the cross. You don't don't even get Jesus. Listen to what he says. 
This is Paul. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the world fully known. Here it is, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. There it is, the gospel at the time that Eliphaz is talking here is a mystery, and he's, he's, he's missing it. He's missing it entirely. Because his whole problem that he's telling Job, Job, you must have sinned in some way. Because the righteous, we know the righteous don't suffer. And the reason why he missed it is it was a crossless wisdom. And so here's just even a, a tip for us when it comes to comforting those who are hurting is that cross centered wisdom allows us to be sensitive. We don't we don't we don't have to be those who come and render ultimate judgment. We can be those who come and entrust the judgment to God and be sensitive. Because unless our wisdom keeps Christ at the center, it will be harsh, uncharitable, extremely burdensome, and ultimately it will be vanity. So that's his plea from tradition. Notice then, that's the first section. Here's the second section. It's a plea from mysticism. It's a plea from mysticism. The secret knowledge from above. And I would actually argue we see this far more in our culture. We see this far more all around us. Now, what we're about to hear is, is really weird. It should actually be like, kind of like, that's really strange that he experienced this. But when someone brings something to us, a vision or a dream, we should never just receive it wholesale. Now, we learned a lot about that in 1 John. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. So, so we shouldn't just believe wholesale when people say things like this. But his first section is, a spirit told me, divine knowledge. Listen to what he says in verse 12. A spirit told me. He says, now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. So you can, so you can hear what Eliphaz is doing here. He's like, yeah, spirit came and told me in the midst of the night. Then listen to what he says in verse uh, 14, or 15. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. So he's, so he's again, he's painting this picture very clearly. The spirit came to me. My hair stood up. And we, what's more important, and oftentimes what we'll do in this moment, is we'll think, oh, this happened to them, so we need to receive it. Now, this maybe did happen to him, but the question is, where did it come from? That's what we need to ask. So what we need to see is that Eliphaz is actually a dangerous man. Eliphaz is actually a very dangerous man. And in this moment, though he doesn't know it, he's actually being used as a tool of the enemy to sway Job. He's a dangerous man because it seems there's some amount of authority in what he's saying. And just notice, too, like how, how in-depth he describes, the Spirit came to me and my hair stood up. All this all these depth of explanation. But listen to what he says is the special source. Here it is, a special source, authority from above. Listen to what he says. Apparently the Spirit said to him, Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? 
Now, I kind of chuckle when I say this because Eliphaz has just described this like spirit that came into him in the midst of the night and he says the most vague general platitude that could possibly be said. It'd be like he came to him and said, the sky is blue. It's like, yes, <laughs> that's, a true, that's a true statement. Can mortal man be in, this, in the right before God? This is the entirety of the scripture. You just, you, the spirit just told you something that is so true from other parts of scripture that you don't need the spirit to tell you this. But listen to what he says in verse 18. The spirit goes on and he says, even his servants he puts no trust. In his angels he charges with wrong. He says that, so notice what he's saying even there in verse 18. He says that even his servants he puts in no trust. Of course, this is, we can get this from other places in scripture. And he goes on in verse 19, How much more are those who dwell in the house of clay, whose foundation is the dust, who are crushed like the moth? Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. And what I want you to see here is that Eliphaz is bringing to Job a half-truth. And now he's applying something that's very true in a very wrong situation with an assumption that you must have sinned. You must have sinned in some way. So it's a half-truth which equals a whole lie. One author said, I love this, he said, Eliphaz was a dangerous man because he only spoke part of the truth, but he did not speak the whole truth. And knowing only part of the truth is dangerous. Further, what truth he did speak was spoken at the wrong time in the wrong spirit. And essentially, his, his logic is simple. It's, you need to be honest with yourself, Job. You're mortal. God's immortal. Stop, stop trying to say that you're in the right. Just, just confess. Then listen to what he says in verse, verses uh, 1 through 7 of chapter 5. He's pleading with him. Plead your case. Plead your case. Is anybody there? That's his question. Listen to what he says in verse 1. He says, call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? And essentially what he's saying to Job is, there's no one, Job. You have no one to, there's no one you can, you can run to, to bring your case to. And Eliphaz's question in verse 1 is not meant to just be a nice question for us to consider with our, with our wine in the ivory tower. It's meant to be a question that screams at us. It's a ginormous question that casts a ginormous shadow. But the shadow that it casts is a shadow of the cross. It's the shadow of the cross, and it beckons an answer. Listen to it again. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? And Job at this time had no one that he could turn to. But we standing at this side of the cross, know that there's been one who's come, and his name is Jesus, and that we can actually call upon him. We can turn to him. But notice, too, here's another thing I just want you to notice. You know, Satan has tried everything to attack Job. He's taken everything from him. He's now struck him with sores. And notice who he brings to him. He brings his friends, people he loves, people, he, people who are close to him. This is not someone maliciously, with malicious intent coming to him. It's someone who loves him. He's put his arm around him. And we see Peter do the same thing to the Lord. Listen to Peter rebuking the Lord in Matthew 16. 
Now, I remember Matthew, Matthew is rec- recorded that Jesus just went through the wilderness. He just went through the wilderness, overcame Satan's temptations, but now he's going to bring his friend to him. Listen to what he says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and raised. Okay, so notice what he's, Jesus is telling them. I'm going to the cross And listen to what Peter does. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this should never happen. So notice what's happening here. Peter, just like Eliphaz, has a crossless wisdom. He's coming to him and he's saying, Lord, Lord, you can't suffer. You can't suffer. That's not the plan. And then listen to what Jesus says to him. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter didn't have a view of the cross here. He had a crossless wisdom that he's bringing to to the Lord Jesus. But Jesus knew. He refused to acknowledge the way of the kingdom was the way of suffering. And I want you to consider something. When we do this to people who've suffered, the damage is incalculable. The damage is actually, it's saying two things. You're saying, God wouldn't do this to you. And then it's also saying, so God's not like this. And secondly, it's also saying, your experience is not valid. And you need to repent and you need to turn and then everything will be better. And that's exactly what the prosperity gospel comes in and does. It's a crossless wisdom that is extremely burdensome. So if you walk away from advice with someone... And, and you've just gone through something terrible. And you think, man, that was really burdensome. That was really weighty. Now, there are times, I want to be very clear, we're not like Job in that we do need to repent. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a situation that you couldn't have taken care of, that it was something outside of your control, something outside of what you've done. And if you hear this crossless wisdom, you should reject it. But also, if we are the ones coming to people, this is what we should see, is that cross-centered wisdom allows us to be sympathetic. Unlike Eliphaz in this moment, who would have done much better of just shutting his mouth and sitting and being sympathetic with his friend, the cross-centered wisdom allows us to be sympathetic with those who hurt, those who are grieved. Unless our wisdom keeps Christ at the center, it will be harsh, uncharitable, extremely burdensome, and ultimately it will be vanity. And so that's his pleas to Job. Listen to what his plea is then going forward. So it's a plea to follow God. Recognize and submit. Plea to follow God. And it's it's the rest of the chapter, chapter 5. And it's really broken up into two real pleas. The first plea is a plea for humility. A plea for humility. Which is essentially acknowledge you're in the wrong. Now again, I want to make this clear. There are times we truly are in the wrong and we suffer because of it. That's not what we have in view here. We have in view here a situation that has come upon Job that he was not in the wrong, but he's being urged, plea plea you're in the wrong, just just acknowledge that you don't be the wise guy here. Submit to God because that's what, that's what I would do. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, as for me, I would seek God. So, so notice what he's doing. He's saying to Job, 
if, if I was in your situation, this is what I would do. I would seek God, and God would commit, and I would commit my cause. <laughs> and to God, I would commit my cause. Basically, he's saying, don't, don't be wise here, Job. Don't be, don't be silly. Submit to God, because that's what I would do. Essentially, bring your case to God. Listen to what he says in verses 9 through 11. He says, who does great things? And now this is where it's very, I want to just warn you as we're going through it. There's going to be a lot of true things that he's saying here. And I want you to see. Who does, this is what he says in verse 9. Who does great things and is unsearchable? Marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly. Those who mourn are lifted to safety. And again, we need to see. Eliphaz is bringing Job many, many true things. But the problem is it's one-dimensional. He's coming to Job, and it's a one-dimensional, with-the-grain mindset. It's the right truth applied at the wrong time. Listen to what he goes on and says, 12 through 16. He says, He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as, as in the night. But he saves the needy from their sword and from the hand of the might. Even Paul picks up on the same language in, in 1 Corinthians 3.19. He says, For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And I think Paul's picking up on almost the sheer irony of what is happening here because Eliphaz is bringing Job a worldly wisdom. And he's basically saying, that's the, that's the wisdom that's folly with God. And then listen to the second part. So that's the plea for humility. The second part is the plea for submission. Submit yourself to God, is what he says. Submit yourself to God. Behold, he says in verse 17. And I know we're covering a lot of text, so if it feels like a lot, it, it is. He says in verse 17, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. I want to be very clear. If he sinned, if Job sinned, this would be really good advice. This is is, the big crux of it. If Job sinned, this would be great advice. Blessed is the one whom God reproves. We see this in Hebrews 12. We see this in other places. But there's one ginormous problem. He didn't sin. He's, he's blameless. We heard it from the mouth of God himself. And he says, therefore, verse 17, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He would deliver you from six troubles, and seven, no evil shall touch you. And again, Eliphaz is coming to Job, and he's saying very kindly, God disciplines those he loves. It's okay. Don't, don't sweat it. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard, and whether it's a wife that goes through a miscarriage, people come to her, even in the church, and say, it's okay, God will give you another one. Just stupid things like that. And again, like we think, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not like Benny Hen. I'm not one of those prosperity preachers. But we come so often with Christless, crossless wisdom. And the problem with Eliphaz is he's assuming that Job has done something to be disciplined. And he hasn't. And again, this is his whole point. God delivers sinners. And the rest of the verses, listen to him, uh, 20 through 22. He says, In famine he will redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue, and shall not fear destruction when it comes. 
At destruction and famine you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. And all this is fine and dandy. It's fine and dandy except for the raging assumption that Job has done something wrong and he hasn't. Here's the thing. Eliphaz is bringing a wisdom. He's just silly about it. He's seeking to bring comfort, but it's focused on tearing him down. Where what we need to see is that a cross-centered wisdom allows us to be supportive. Unlike having to go to people and tear them down when they suffer, we can actually go to them and support them and love them. But this book, like we've talked about, is prophetic. These friends are prophetic. And we've talked about how these friends, uttering half-truths, are prophetic. And I want you to see, finally, a crossless wisdom, which is utter vanity. A crossless wisdom, which is utter vanity. And the question is, how are these friends prophetic? Well, they're prophetic because... You have to picture and remember that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was in Gethsemane, all of his friends abandoned him. And then, from the foot of the cross, I want you to listen to what they said of him. Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, He says, For I tell you that Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. They stood at the foot of the cross and they saw the King of glory on the cross dying for the sins of people. And they said... He sinned. He's reaping what he sowed. And the reason why the book of Job is such a mystery is because people remove it, remove the gospel from it. They remove the cross from it. And if we don't have a cross in view with Job, this would be a mystery. It would be staggering. We'd be, we'd be sitting here, we'd be like, what is he talking about? But these friends prophesy those who will come and will cry out, crucify him. He's, he's, he's deserving of it. But Eliphaz also, and now we've looked at one of the questions. I want you to look at three of them here in front of you. Eliphaz poses three different questions that, apart from the Lord Jesus, just make no sense. <laughs> Listen to what he says in verse four or verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? Or, or verse 17, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And then v- verse 1 of chapter 5, call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? And the answer, the, the, the stark answer for us here today is that Jesus has come. He is the one who became God with man. He's the one who came and has actually made us to be pure before God. So that question, can man be pure before his maker? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. That our Messiah has come. Our righteousness has come. Or to quote Paul in 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
There is no way for you and I to stand pure before our maker apart from the Lord Jesus. And if Jesus hadn't come, those questions would stand as huge accusations. But he has come. The righteous has actually suffered for the unrighteous. The righteous has suffered on behalf of the unrighteous. And he has given us his righteousness. And it's covered by his blood. And I will tell you that Eliphaz had no, no idea of this. He had a Christless, crossless wisdom. And it was a religious wisdom. Much truth involved in it. But it had no view of the cross. So we're going to stop now. We're going to pause and we're going to take communion. And I want us to consider our own wisdom. I want us to consider our own, the, the ways that we think about advising those who suffer. I want us to pause and I want us to reflect upon it. But I want us to do so as we take communion. Because we are not ones who stand with a crossless wisdom. As we take communion, I want us to consider that we have a Christ-filled wisdom. So if guys, if you guys want to come forward, we'll go ahead and take communion.